you got to tell people stuff. Hello and welcome to JudgeCast. This is episode 299. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Perlman, and I am joined this evening, afternoon, morning drive to work by the one and only Charles Feather. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. And this evening, afternoon, morning, afternoon, morning drive to work, uh, we are going to be talking about uh, managing large events, judge managing, specifically with the context of SCG Baltimore. And while neither one of us judge-managed or managed SCG Baltimore, we figured uh, it would be a good idea to actually bring someone on who did that. So, welcome, Jared Silva. How's it going, guys? Hey! It's going well. So, Jared is a guest that we have had uh, several times in the past over our illustrious 13-year run of podcasts. But, Jared, uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself, maybe do a little bit of horn tooting. <laughs> uh, well, I'm the organized play department manager with Star City Games. Uh, and as such, I am at all of our SEG Con events. Uh, and I also am responsible for the staffing. I work with my team to uh, make sure that we get the right people in place. But at the end of the day, a lot of those decisions come down to me. Uh, I also am the assistant tournament organizer for uh, the recent Pro Tours and for the upcoming Worlds event in Las Vegas. Uh, I work with Meg Baum and Pastimes, uh, as well as Scott Larrabee and Wizards on the staffing for those events. And then at the events, I work directly with Scott to run the Pro Tour itself. Uh, and I'll be working on Worlds in Vegas. I guess I'm also a level three judge. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I guess I was a level four back when those existed. I, I think I think the horn has been tooted. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, at this particular point in time, SCG Baltimore was a week and a half ago. The dust is clearing yep. a little bit. And so we thought it would be a great time to have, have Jared on and talk a little bit about what goes on before the event from a from a uh, an event manager, what happens during the event, and a little bit of what goes on after. Sure. Happy to get into as much as or as little as you guys want to get into. Okay. So how how big, just overall, how big was SEG Con Baltimore? So we had over 1,300 individual players uh, over the course of three days. We opened up on noon at noon on Friday, and then we were open all day, Saturday and Sunday. We had... Uh, trials for our Legacy 10K on Friday. We had a Legacy 10K on Saturday, a CEDH 5K on Saturday, as well as a Legacy 5K on Sunday. We also are working with DreamHack on their RCQ program. So we had ReCQs, and we had uh, two of those cap out at 96 on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, Because this was a Command Fest event, there were day passes, and uh, weekend passes for the command zone portion of the event. And so there was a part of SEG Con that you could come out to and participate in without uh, paying an entry, but we had a special area that was set aside, had more space, and some areas that were completely dedicated to casual commander play, as well as some special events that were only available in the command zone uh, for players that did get badges. And that's the CEDH 5K? 
Yep, that was one of them. And then we also had some special events. We had um, Oathbreaker and Casual Commander, CEDH, uh, just kind of one-round scheduled events for players who wanted to do them. Uh, We also had a special uh, PvE experience, the Dragon's Lair, that uh, we had in Richmond, and this was the second event coming back. PvE, the the Dragon's Lair? Yep, it's a SCG exclusive that we designed for. It's a a player versus everyone experience. Oh, uh, so it's kind of an auto battler that uh, anywhere from one to four players play against to try and defeat the dragon. Most often, it was two or three players. From my perspective, uh, I, mm-hmm. was, I was on stage and I was signing up people to do those types of events. Uh, it, at on two players, I was told it's hard mode. And on yep. three players, it's uh, average or, or what's to be expected. Yep. And four, it, it four players can be, players. yeah, and four players can be a little bit easier. I can say that when players went and played it, a they came back and always had a good time. Um, but b they were gone playing for an hour twenty, hour thirty minutes, oftentimes. Okay, so it, so we're very happy with that one. Yeah, okay, so it's sort of like Archenemy in a sense. Or um, if you're familiar with uh, um, Commander Boss Battle. Um, it's, 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 it's similar to that. It's, but it's much more complex and layered. Um, so arch enemy usually has someone playing as the Mm -hmm. big bad, um, dragon's lair actually automatically does things, uh, each turn. Okay. And so the players take their turn and then there's a prescribed set of actions that occur, including some randomization, uh, for the dragon side of the, so it's, it's like, a saga combined with arch enemy if that kind of kind of okay yeah, there's okay. there's a prescribed set of actions that the the dragon's lair takes each turn uh and there is you know a lot of ways to interact with it things that can happen okay. very differently game to game that sounds cool but everybody's on the same team which is one of the things that i think is really attractive about it awesome and then they also had the build a box the Commander Boxing League, yeah. So you got a box of the new set of Lord of the Rings, and you had to build a Commander deck out of just the cards that you received. That sounds kind of cool. All right, well, that, that all happened at the event. So mm-hmm. let's let's talk about beforehand. So for an event like, like Baltimore, what sort of factors go in? Like, we're starting Blank Slate uh, nine months ago, 12 months ago there's a there's a, a a twinkle in Jared's eye and he's like let's have an event like what what goes in what factors go into deciding like where like like why Baltimore and why that particular venue can I even back it up one more step sure um, sure how many venues are you planning at one time we usually plan quarterly uh and so we'll do the first 3 months the second 3 months uh, and that kind of mirrors around um, sets, standard legal sets. There's usually four releases a year, sometimes five, sometimes nine, sometimes <laughs> 32. Um, but, you know, the old traditional four sets a year, we kind of planned around chunks uh, as we got information about those releases. Because the timing of those releases makes a big impact on when we want to run events. It's more effective to run an event shortly after a release or even on a release uh, or a pre-release weekend than it is right before a new set hits. Because when you're running an event right before a new set hits, the format is about to change. 
Uh, and also, people are already excited about the next thing. They maybe are saving up their money to get cards of the new set. And so you want to put your event in a time frame where players are excited to come out and play the formats as well. As well as a time when players are excited to come out and uh, visit the vendors that are going to be coming out to your event. Because it's a collaboration with not just the players, the judges, but the vendors are also a big part of what makes an event successful. Is your experience, do you just have like a a cycle where you're like, once a year we want to hit Baltimore, once a year we want to hit, you know, somewhere in New Jersey once a year, or that you've just established a pattern, or is there something else that goes into it? So there's more of a pool of locations that we're willing to look at. Um, if we've been to some place in the past six months or so, it's very likely to be something we would skip over unless there's a very specific reason we want to be there. Um, but usually we'll be looking everywhere because the biggest thing that is important is whether or not you can get into the hall that you need to get into. And with SEGCon, uh, the size of the hall mm-hmm. narrows your options very quickly to not all that many. Um, once you add in the price of halls, some places kind of price themselves out of, of being a, a possible place for us to be. Um, it becomes, all right, so where can we be on the weekends that work? Okay. And, and with Baltimore specifically, uh, and Richmond as well, they were both Command Fest events, where Wizards of the Coast was specifically wanting events on that weekend you'll notice that there were events in multiple cities on that weekend they wanted a bunch of command fests on the pre-releases for um march of the machine and for lord of the rings and so wizards contacted us and the other organizers with a specific weekend that they wanted to do and we went looking for a venue that would work on that weekend did they have any guidance as to which venue or or was that completely wide open and left up to you it was left up to us, but we had kind of a geographical area. So I believe Pastimes had one in Indianapolis, and then I think Cool Stuff mm-hmm. had one down in Florida. And so yep. we were tasked with looking towards the northeast mid-Atlantic area to find a spot for one. Sure. Trying to serve the area of the country geographically. Yeah, there was there was one in California, Ed, Edmonton, mm-hmm. and I think the Canadian Regional Championship also had a Command Fest co-located with it. I think. Certainly possible. I didn't I dig think. into every single one, yeah. but I, the ones that were most relevant to us in terms of trying to spread out was, was Florida and Indianapolis. Do you factor in, like, near a good airport, near a reasonable hotel, or is it just you've worked with venues x y and z over the last 15 years so you you've already kind of vetted them so you don't make that decision you don't consciously make that decision anymore it's just already fed into your um... a lot of that's rolled into the places that we're comfortable going to and honestly at the size venue that we are looking for there aren't many of them that are located in the middle of nowhere um every once in a while um there is there's a place called the cabaris convention center outside of charlotte that's actually just a convention center in the middle of a field at the end of a road i have been to that event i have been to Um, that event but i believe that they are building a hotel next to it and 
I think that there's also a restaurant that is now across the street. Like it started <laughs> off as absolutely nothing. And naturally you actually started to get some things around it. But most of the spaces that are large enough to host an SCG con mm -hmm. are more likely to be downtown areas such as Charlotte or Columbus, um, you know, Indianapolis, Philadelphia, places that are set up to handle thousands of people showing up and needing food, needing a place to stay. Um, and so a lot of that kind of naturally comes with the size of the venues that we're looking for. It mm -hmm. was more of a concern when we were looking at smaller venues that might be a ballroom at a hotel and you had to then know, okay, if we're going there, we need to worry more about food or give people more time to get food because they actually have to go somewhere. Okay. All right. And with with respect to the pro pro tour, for example, do mm -hmm. you guys do you guys choose the like does Wizards decide the city and then y'all try and find a venue or do they come? I'm actually not involved in that side of okay. things. Uh, I believe they're working directly with Read Pop uh, and Pastimes on that, but okay. they're also looking for different levels uh, of of space than we are. We were in Baltimore. We were in two of their halls. If MagicCon was in Baltimore, they would have needed the entire convention center. And so that's a much different thing, and that's a much different timeline as well. If you're looking to do that, you need to be years out on your planning because you're going to be... You, they So convention centers will book those types of large events that are willing to come in and say, hey, we'll buy out your whole facility. They book those before they open booking to smaller events because they want those large events those events fill up everything they bring in a ton of extra money they bring a ton of commerce to the area and a lot of the convention centers are owned by the city as not necessarily a loss leader but they are designed to bring large events to the city so that you get the hotel room stays and you get the uh the people going out to eat in the downtown area and you get just a lot of commerce that comes in with large conventions. And so booking that large convention that books the whole space is a higher priority for them than booking an event like ours, which is large. You know, we're taking two uh, exhibit halls, but not the size of, you know, something like Magic Con or Gen Con, you know, San Diego Comic Con. Um, there's also you know, a bunch of things that are way outside of our industry that are coming in and, you know, maybe a pharmaceutical convention comes in and buys out the entire uh, convention center for a weekend. So the $12 and, slice of pizza is really just encouraging you to go out and visit local restaurants? <laughs> I mean, to some <laughs> degree, yeah. <laughs> um, that's also Aramark's fault, but we can get into that later. Um <laughs> So we're coming in as SEG in that window after they have said, okay, opportunities to book the entire convention center are closed out. And now we're in usually about an like 12 to 18 month window where they open it up to people booking, you know, larger shows, but not, you know, convention center filling shows. Okay. So that's that's the pro tour is the the twelve to twelve to eighteen months ahead, and then mm -hmm. how how far ahead? Like how far ahead did you did you plan on for SCG Baltimore? Baltimore, I believe, was 
booked close to the beginning of the year. I think it was I, I think it was February. So it was it was really short notice because um, we needed we got the information that we needed to run an event that weekend later than we would have. Mm-hmm. Um, we would like to be in the six to nine months out. Um, if we were if we were just making our schedule without needing to check with anybody else and without you know making any accommodations for other people, six to nine months out is about where we'd want to be, uh, and we'd probably do it by quarter. We'd just look at a quarter, book it out, okay. look at a quarter, book it out. And honestly, if we got you know did a half a year and a half a year, we'd be in the six to twelve months out, um, depending on whether it was near the start of the time we were booking or near the end of the time that we're booking. Uh, And that would usually hit kind of the sweet spot of enough availability, but also enough certainty as to what's going to be happening by that point in time that we're comfortable with the events. Your announcements for the rest of the year seem to follow that plan more. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, I mean, it sounded like you announced for, for Ohio, for, for Dallas, Mm -hmm. for forget what the third one is. Um, but it sounded like you so announced like two months ago for those, right? We announced those shortly after we announced Baltimore, so in May. Um, and we were right at that like six months out for the last one. So we have uh, Cincinnati coming up on July 14th to 16th. We've got Columbus coming up on Labor Day weekend, the first weekend of September. We've got Dallas on the weekend of the 19th, 20th, and 21st of October. Um, or actually, I guess 20th, 21st, 22nd. And then uh, we're in Pittsburgh uh, on the uh, 10th, 11th, and 12th of November. And that's, we're expecting to be all of our shows for the rest of the year. So that puts us a little bit further than six months out when we announced it, but not much. Yeah. Okay. So you make the announcement. How, how soon before the event do you want to make a staffing call for judges? So my goal on staffing is to have leadership locked in by about eight weeks out and then floor judges by about six weeks out. Um, I think that gives people enough time to plan for the event Mm -hmm. um, without expecting people to be committing to things three months down the road. Um, And so that usually means that we post a call for leadership about 10 weeks out, so a little over two months away from the event. Uh, and then when the leadership closes at, at eight weeks, we will post the floor judge and then close that around six weeks. Sometimes those get a little bit tighter. Um, I try not to have multiple win- windows open at the same time so that people don't get confused about what they're applying for. And so I'm expecting to be opening the uh, Columbus, which is uh, the first weekend of September. I'm going to be opening the leadership window for that when we close applications for flesh and blood U.S. nationals floor judges tomorrow. So that'll basically close the flesh and blood nationals application window and then open up the leadership window for Columbus. Uh, So we'll be about on that 10 weeks for that one. Uh, And every once in a while when we have events close together, we've got Dallas and Pittsburgh that are three weeks apart. Uh, I'm going to actually run the leadership for those two at the same time. And that allows us to kind of balance some things a little bit and and look at a broader picture of what we're doing with those leadership roles. All right. Uh, Charles, did you, you had a specific question about solicitations. 
Yeah, so, I mean, it's something that judges sit there and talk about a little bit here and there, and we've heard different numbers, but the numbers we heard were all pre-COVID. Can you comment on the differences between responses that you get to staffing solicitations between then and now? I mean, we used to hear that you would get, you know, 80, you'd have to turn down, you know, 80% of the judges that applied that were L2s and stuff like that, or or maybe not you, but for GP numbers, maybe. Um, but But what's it like now? So with Magic, we are taking most of the judges who apply, but not all. For leadership, it's, it's close to 50%. But for floor judges, we usually are taking most of the people who apply and aren't uh, requiring three days. One of the things that's difficult is building a staff where you have kind of the, an arc where you're low on Friday, high on Saturday, low on Sunday. And, you know, those arcs look a little bit different depending on what events you have going over the weekend. But Saturday is always the peak. And that means that you have to have some number of people who are two days and ideally a couple of people who are one day to just get that peak cleanly. Um, and it minimizes the number of people you can take for three days without ballooning Friday and Sunday beyond what you actually need. Uh, and so the hardest people to fit in are people who require three days it just puts them into a smaller uh, puts them into a pool that is competing for a limited number of slots yeah i i had one guy apply or talk to talk to me and saying like oh i think you know the next one of these if you guys do another one uh although i kind of want to play so if i apply for friday sunday what do you think my odds are getting accepted and i was like like almost zero Not good yeah, yeah like that's <laughs> no Apply Saturday, Sunday, and make it out and play on Friday. Yeah. Um, It's just, it's not what I need as an organizer. Um, And so if if you want to come out to the event and play, great, come out to the event and play. But if you're not applying for Saturday, it's, you're taking yourself away for the highest priority day. Right. I have, I have taken people for Friday, Sunday, um, but most of the times that I have done that, it has actually been for religious reasons. Um, it's been judges who are orthodox and who don't do work on Saturdays for religious reasons. When when putting a comp out, mm-hmm. do you how much do you look at the cost of hotels or airline tickets to the specific location? Does the location of the venue alter alter anything or factor into into compensation? There have been a couple of times that we have looked at how difficult it is to get to the place that we're going to and decided that we're going to provide some additional, basically set aside some additional money for travel stipends. But those are very rare. Um, one of the things where this kind of gets rolled into considerations is that's a consideration for whether or not players are going to come out to the event. If it's very expensive or very hard to get to wherever you are, that's just going to be an impact on how, how difficult it is for players to get there. And that's going to impact how many players come out and how successful the event can be. And so we're kind of thinking about accessibility pretty early on. Now, Downtown hotels have certainly gotten a lot more expensive uh, since the pandemic. Um, and so when when we came out 
of uh, of the pandemic and came back with events, we raised our compensation level, and so we've been we've been happy to be able to do that. Um, and we switched over to a travel stipend rather than a hotel uh, situation. We used to offer hotels directly, but now we offer travel stipends, and the reason for that is the amount of money that we were spending on hotels is just more efficiently put into judges' pockets. And also um, and also time, right? I mean, man, yeah, managing I, that, managing that's got to be a pain in the neck. It, it taking that off our plate was a was a not inconsequential piece of it, but largely it was I'm spending X dollars and it does not look like I'm spending X dollars. Like if I handed people this money, they would be more efficient with it than I can be because I have to get a certain type of hotel and people with money in their pockets can decide okay, I'm going to stay 10 minutes away from the venue or I'm going to uh, room with three people. And if I'm doing the booking, neither of those things work particularly effectively. I need to have my staff close to the venue and we don't want to be booking at multiple hotels and because we also, if we're booking a hotel room for someone, want to be there to take care of any issues that might come up. I don't want them to be 15 minutes away from the venue and I need to get in a car to go over there to try and sort something out. So we just aren't able to efficiently spend money on hotels and I'd much rather take the money that I was spending on hotels and divvy it up among the people who who need the money to get to the event um, and just be able to efficiently give that money to them. Okay. All right. So Baltimore was an event that had flesh and blood located at mm-hmm. it. it. You had Legacy 10K, CEDH 5K. You had a Command Fest in the mix. So you're running uh, the mix between comp rel and regular events and when you work on pro tour stuff there's there's professional in there involved Mm -hmm. uh so what what sort of factors go into determining the type of staff you need for this gambit of events this pope this potpourri of of uh players (laughs) potpourri is a good (laughs) so when we're planning out one of the things that we do is kind of game out how many players we're expecting for each event and that leads us to how many judges we need for that event, which leads us to, when we put it all together, how many judges we need each day. And when we're doing that, we aim for a 30 to 1 player to judge ratio on magic events and on flesh and blood events. Mm -hmm. Um, And then for commander, we need fewer than that because in general, they're mostly just playing. Um, There's not as much judge work happening around the logistics. It's mostly just you know, every once in a while you start an event, but even when those events are running, there's a lot more kind of figuring things out at the table and every once in a while calling for a judge. But it's a lot different than if I am running a five round event and I've got to turn those event those rounds over and I've got to, you know, get into judge calls where it's a one on one situation and both of the players are really invested in whether or not they win or not. And to be perfectly honest, there's a bunch of commander games where that's just not the primary goal. Yeah. And so that takes, you know, takes those situations kind of ratcheted down a lot. Large events kind of have specific needs. And so it's, it's weird because, you know, for the re-CQs that are 96 players, you have a certain amount of things that still need to get done. You still need to manage deck lists. You still need to 
get everything posted. You still need to have players, you know, judge calls answered. And you wind up in a situation where you need a certain number of judges just to do kind of the logistical pieces. And then you need judges to answer calls. But for side events, it's 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 different because you might have a nine-player side event. You might have a 50-player side event. But realistically, both of those are going to take similar amounts of of, of support. Of judge attention, Be, yeah. Because one judge launching each round for either of those is needed. And then maybe the 50-player event has a little bit more judge call, has a few more judge calls, but not that many more. All you need is one thing to go wrong in a nine-player event, and you've you've got to be over there helping them out. Um, and so you need to be available to a nine-player event the same way you need to be available to a 50-player event, whereas with a, a larger competitive RAL event, you have you know people who are kind of tied up in a deck check, and you've got people who are tied up in in posting or they're trying to run an end of round and track people down. Um, so it, it fits together differently. We, again, we just aim for that 30 to one player to judge ratio, uh, for our, for all of those. How, how much, when, when you have flesh and blood and you said you still keep the Mm -hmm. 30 to one, how many, how many judges, and I'm going to use the word double Q, but, (laughs) um, they say like, I'll work either. Yeah, we have probably a handful at any given event. Um, most people are kind of in one track or the other, but there are a fair number of magic judges who have uh, certified for flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. But our needs are much higher for magic than they are for flesh and blood. We usually max out at about five slots for flesh and blood over the course of the weekend. And so because of that, if I have 10 people applying for flesh and blood and 35 people applying for magic, I'm probably turning down five of the flesh and blood and I'm taking all 35 of the people who applied for magic unless I can't fit them in. It, um, is the compensation different for the two, for the two judge types? So it's the same from us, but flesh and blood, uh, LSS, the legend story studios, uh, provides some judge support, special judge gifts for, for judges that we're able to give to the judges that work on flesh and blood over the weekend. Hmm. Wizards does not. <laughs> We're just going to leave that there. Okay. I <laughs> Wizards don't. We, we can leave that there, but LSS is also in, in New Zealand. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Okay. So you made the, you made the comment that, you know, if you suspect that you have lots of small, lots of smaller events, you are probably going to need more bodies just to handle the logistics of, Posting, post, you know, posting pairings and being over there and starting the rounds and stuff like that. Wait, I, I thought we went all electronic. We, we still post pairings? We post paper pairings because anybody who comes in should be able to play. And so that means if you don't have a cell phone or if you don't have a wizard's account or if for some reason during the registration process something gets crossed up and Event Link decides that you are not a real person, uh, we still want you to be able to find your seat. We still want you to be able to come and have fun playing at the event, uh, even if you are mad at Event Link by the end of it. So I, I will say that Fl- Floridians, about 20% of them are just allergic to Event Link. 
I I don't understand why they're just you know they don't want they don't the, want they're, the they're, man. The, the truth is, is they're still using Nokia flip phones. I you say that that's, I had one turned into lost and found like a razor that's flip a phone good strategy for not scrolling on Facebook but, all day. But the truth is, is that not all players have the same level of technology. There's there's not uh, an equal uh, lateral. Um, basis for for all players and and sometimes they have bad signal or their phone died or or yep. whatever I, I will also say i mean I'll, I'll double down on the bad signal we're in a bunch of concrete blocks mm-hmm. um and so there's plenty of times that getting one bar is when you're happy but the other thing that i would say is just the process of pairings being posted is also an indication to players to check their phones and so Sometimes it's not about them actually going up and checking the paper, but it's about seeing that the paper is going up that indicates to them, oh, the round's turning over. And so without that, if you're in a local store, it's nice and easy, but we don't want to be announcing every round turnover over the loudspeaker. And so you get the push notification to your phone, but if we also have somebody who is going and putting a piece of paper up in your area, that's going to help to indicate to the players that, hey, it's time to play the next round. So l- let me ask you a question. I mean, I've worked a number of SCG events. I kind of have an idea for this. How how big a deal uh, are judges being bilingual or polylingual? Um, how does that work out for you? I like it at SCG events because every once in a while we do encounter a customer whose primary language is not English. The language that actually is probably the most useful to us uh, at SCG cons would be ASL because... Yes we're more likely to encounter someone who is more comfortable communicating in ASL than we are to encounter players that are more comfortable uh, communicating in Spanish or Russian or Japanese, uh, although that does happen from time to time. There was a whole group of players at Baltimore mm-hmm. that were, were uh, using ASL. Um, and you know, the, the judges on stage and the judges on the floor, I think a lot of them resorted to, to notes back and forth mm-hmm. and, and that does work, but it takes a little extra time. And I'm sure if somebody knew ASL, it could have cut through that a little bit. I will say one of the challenges and, and we run into this at the pro tour as well, is anytime that you're doing translation, the opponent, uh, or anybody else involved in the ruling needs to understand what's being said. And so if it is, if the communication is clear and in a language that is understood by both players, that's going to be your best place to go. I know that in Baltimore they were using a a voice to text uh, for they would hold their phone out mm-hmm. and you would speak and it would uh, transcribe it, and that was an effective way that they were bringing to um, to communicate with staff who were not fluent in ASL. Okay. Now, for other events outside of, so ASL is probably one of the more important languages to know outside or inside the U.S., but you don't necessarily do staffing just inside the U.S., right? Uh, No, and for the Pro Tour, language is a very important consideration when selecting staff. Okay. so We try to cover all of the major languages, um, and that's... Spanish, Portuguese, German, French, Japanese, Chinese, and 
just making sure that if there's going to be a reasonable contingent from an area where we're expecting that they're not going to be comfortable uh, speaking about especially in-depth manner, in-depth matters uh, in English, then we want to have the ability to provide someone who is able to communicate with them in their their uh, their primary language. And I I assume that's got to translate to if you have a uh, a pro tour in another in Europe, for example, that a U.S. person getting on staff who only knows English is probably at a disadvantage in both the language department and in the travel stipend. Yeah, so we have to bring a lot of people to the U.S. when we have an event here because mm-hmm. we simply do not have the language skills necessary uh, to run a pro tour domestically. And apparently there's some thunder going on. I don't know if you guys heard yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just Whoa, we, nice. we do not have the language skills to run a pro tour domestically. <laughs> <laughs> apparently Zeus agrees. <laughs> um, but when we go to Europe, most of the language skills that we need are local or are just as far away as they are in the U S you know, if I need Japanese uh, or I need Chinese, I'm usually having to bring that in from um, from Asia. And so whether that's coming to the U.S. or coming to Europe is pretty much you know just a coin flip. But bringing someone from the U.S. who doesn't bring language skills, that just goes way down our priority ladder to, um, to be able to bring them in. And so when we did Barcelona, most of the people that we took were judges from Europe and then a few people to fill in languages from from Asia and we have I believe two US judges who are on staff for Barcelona. Now, one one thing I want to call out that you you mentioned a little bit earlier, but something that I I specifically want to call out is SCG's been really good about kind of like and this this even goes back to like 2015 2016 and and before is like growing judge skills and 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 you've implemented the keystone pipeline it makes it sound like you're transporting oil but like a a a flow from keystone xl yeah you're just the keystone okay but yeah going from from floor judge to keystone to lead to head judge SCG when when PTQs went away, like old big 200, mm-hmm. 250 person PTQs went away, like the SCG open circuit was kind of the replacement in a lot of ways, shape or form. And then you guys have kind of moved into into the uh, into this particular process that you've got. Can you just talk a little bit about how that evolved and how successful it's been for you guys? Sure. Um, there's there's no way that I can talk about this without at least shouting out Rigi Hayashi. Um he was the staffing coordinator with us for a really long time, and a lot of the ideas that he brought to to the job are things that I try to carry on today. And, and that is really kind of looking for those opportunities for people to grow and looking to give people the opportunities to take the next step. Um, he has a philosophy called Rocks and Reaches, where you look to have your leads at events have a mix of people that are rocks that you don't have to worry about that you can just 
put in place and let handle things and then reaches where they are taking their next step. And those are the people that you expect to kind of be a little more over the shoulder of and to to watch a little more closely and provide more support and more feedback because they're still learning at that level. And so with the way that we've laid things out where, you know, we have floor judge positions and, you know, even within those, you've got one day, two day and three day floor judges and kind of the first time that you get a three day floor judge is a relevant thing to a lot of judges. And that's, you know, that's a step that you're taking. And then we have Keystone, which is where you're going to be considered more for leads on major events. You have a longer shift. And so you're going to be the people that are, are, are leaned on within whichever area you're assigned to. Um, and then we get into more specific leads. Um, the first one that we look at these days is trials lead because that's a Friday only event. It usually is where I assign the head judges for the main events because I want to have them kind of get their hands on the format before they get into head judging on Saturday. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, you're naturally putting really strong judges right there in case the, the trials lead has any questions in case the trials lead needs to lean on somebody for something. Um, you've got, you're going to have strong judges right there. It also means that judge is getting exposure to those, um, to those high level judges and getting a chance to, you know, show off to some degree, but just come in and say, okay, here's what I can do. Um, the next step would be a 5k. Um, you know, when you get your first chance to head judge something and get into a red shirt, that really means a lot. That's something where, you know, there's there's a lot of pictures taken once judges get into that red shirt. <laughs> and then, you know, you can work your way up. You know, we have 5Ks, we have 10Ks, and then we have our main events that are the two-day events, and we have support judges for those. And the support judges for those two-day events are something where we can have somebody who has head judged a few times before and who is looking towards that, that two day head judge position, but maybe is not there yet. And, you know, getting that chance to kind of ride shotgun as one of the the people who has done it before. And when we, when we do this, we try to pair up someone who really knows what they're doing uh, with the newer judge. And that can be a really great experience. Um, and then you have, you know, head judging a two day event. We also have our, our magic sides lead position as well. And we actually consider those to be pretty much on par. The Magic Sides lead is a three-day lead position. You're juggling a whole bunch of different events. You have to figure out where your where your starting table numbers are going to be for all of the events. And you're, you have to figure out basically everything for dozens of events over the course of the weekend. And so that's a much more complicated position than people give it credit for. Uh, you also have a very large event. And uh, apparently Thor's back. <laughs> Let me ask, you, have, you haven't quite talked about it yet, but one of the positions that you have is support judges. Mm -hmm. What What is the difference between a support judge and, and a term people might be more familiar with, like an appeals judge? Like the, the, red shirt, the alternate red shirts at a GP? Yep. So we... We intentionally phrase it as support judge because we want that judge to be supporting the head judge 
uh, through the process. And the reason for that is with anything shy of an event that we assign a support judge to, we're comfortable saying, okay, someone gets sick the week of, we can hand a 5K to an experienced Keystone judge and say, hey, we need someone to take over the Pioneer 5K. Can you step in? I'm not comfortable saying that to somebody week of for a 20K. So I want someone who's familiar with, okay, here's how we built the teams. Here's what we were planning to do. Here's how we wanted to run things. So that's the main reason why we call it a support judge is because especially at our events, it's specifically aimed at what happens if we lose the head judge. Okay. So so it's in part helper and and part understudy? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And also at the event... They do take appeals. Um, We expect them to be the person who's in charge when the head judge is on break because we do expect the head judge to take a break. Um. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So so all of this is great and wonderful, but I feel like we're missing something. What about stage staff? Yeah, so stage staff is really kind of a different different channel. Um, We have some high-end staff that do scorekeeping that uh, help us out with stuff like product and managing judges and registration lead positions. Uh, And there is some crossover there between high-end judges and kind of high-end event operators. Um, You know, a great example of that would be John Aldifer, uh, who was one of the appeals judges at the Pro Tour in Minneapolis and has worked with us, uh, was working with us in Baltimore as in charge of product distribution, as well as providing support to the judges in terms of, you know, hey, you're here. Okay, here's where you get your shirt. Here's a notebook. You know, here's who you're assigned to. Here's a a staff schedule, that type of stuff. Um, And then we also have uh, registration staff and just what we call stage staff. And that's where where Charles was this this past weekend. Good Lord. What? No, weekend before. Charles was in Baltimore? Yeah, I was I yeah. was in Baltimore, and I also got to work stage for them for uh, New Jersey, yeah. um, which is a different style of event. So it's actually interesting because SCG's um, one of the companies out there that gets to run multiple types of events. Uh, I think uh, also cool stuff and and NRG, and there are a few others get, that get to do this. But the one in New Jersey was just uh, was a was a SCG con. It was that's all that was. Um, this one had the Command Fest tacked on as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, I we use SCGCon as kind of the umbrella branding, but it would be featuring a command fest. We had that in Richmond, we had that in Baltimore. We may have it at future events, um, but that's something that coordinates directly through Wizards. Um, the SCGCons are, you know, our our branding and our events. Um, but for stage staff, that's primarily focused on registering players for events uh, as well as distributing some of the prizes. We've been able to cut back a lot on the prizes that need to go out from the stage by pushing a lot of those to the floor. Um, and they go out each round with the winner taking some amount of tickets or the two players splitting it if there's a draw. Uh, but the if you kind of win out in the event, you're going to wind up with more tickets than we hand out at the table. All right, so you've gone through the process of figuring out what languages, uh, what judges, what events, and you have, these are the 30 people that we're going to accept for the event. You send out the acceptances, and they they give you the thumbs up, yep, I'm, I'm wanting to be on staff. So what, what 
pre-event communications are you as judge manager looking to do and what are you looking to uh punt to or or allocate to the leads and head judges uh, so i'm going to actually jump back to something oh. that you touched on which is uh it's always an offer when we reach out to somebody and say hey we'd like to have you on staff it they've applied and they've said here's what we need but we always make an offer and then the judge can reply. I've had plenty of judges who come back and they say, hey, now that you're making the offer, I'm looking at flights or I'm looking at hotels and I can't make this work. And that's not a problem for us. We try to kind of over offer a little bit so that we have a little bit of play in case we lose some people. But we want to make sure that it works for you. And that's why we ask what it takes to get you to the event what's necessary for it to work for you. Um, So I just wanted to emphasize that when we do reach out, it is an offer and I am waiting for people to confirm and say, yes, I accept the offer. Now I'm ready to go. And then to jump forward to what you were talking about and what judges need, you know, we have that initial thing that says, Hey, we're offering you, let's say Saturday and Sunday as a floor judge at this event. They say yes to that. The next thing that they need to know is, okay, so what am I doing on Saturday and Sunday? When do I need to be there? What am I going to be responsible for? And and what are the expectations for what's going to happen? And so I have an email that I'm actually just about to send out for Cincinnati where I send out, here's the person you're going to report to. Here's the time that your shift should be. And um, here's the area that you're assigned to. And Along with that comes, you know, it's somewhat boilerplate and a lot of it stays the same, but it's basically, here's what we expect from judges at our events. Here's your dress code. Here is, you know, what we expect when you go on break. Here's what we expect uh, in terms of how you engage with customers. And then we get to the part that you were talking about where we defer to the head judges a lot with stuff that has to do with their individual area or their tournament. Um, We're not going to dictate to a head judge, hey, you have to use this person as a lead or you have to use this team structure. We leave that to them and we're there as a resource if they want to ask questions. A lot of times, first time uh, head judges or leads will reach out to me and say, hey, do you have any, any examples of how the last few people have done this? And one of the things that I'll do is I'll try to provide some of the briefings that previous um, that previous leads or previous head judges have provided to their teams, but also I will give them a list of the people who have done it recently so that they can talk to them because their experience is hands-on, and I'll be perfectly honest, I haven't head judged a Star City Games 5K in probably 10 years. <laughs> Be- between this and what you were talking about with the Keystone, it's almost like... Uh... SCG considers mentoring to be an important building block for judges. Yeah, and also that your best resources for getting better are other judges. Yeah, and I'm gonna—I've made this comment before, maybe even when you've been on the the episode before. <laughs> but SCG giving the head judges and the leads the room to, you know, create their own teams, generate their own processes was something that was significantly more refreshing than back in the than the channel in the channel fireball days where GPs were very cookie cutter and your roles were 
when you got a role, it was very much in a box and with with very prescribed edges to it uh, without a whole lot of, of ability to pivot and try something a little bit different. And I always liked that aspect of y'all's events. Well, I will, I'll defend them here because I think what they were trying to do was a lot bigger and a lot more moving parts. We do pretty well at streamlining what we're trying to accomplish. And so, you know, the head judge of a 5K is in a box. It's just that we then give them the box and say, do what you want. Um, I, I, un- I understand, like, the larger event and they're kind of churning through it and they're 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 traveling around a lot so they're dealing with different judges so having the the structure i'm I'm just saying that i enjoyed the freedom more in the scg than in the cfbe realm oh i'm so, happy to hear it yeah <laughs> for folks for 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 newer judges um brian just referenced cfb cfb was channel fireball or channel fireball events they were in charge for several years before covid uh of running the gp circuit uh they were in charge magic for, fests. for magic fests um well it was rebranded too during that phase right um for three years they did that and then uh and then COVID happened and um they have not run yeah. things since then yeah also one other thing that jared talked about very very little where he's talking about form letters if you decide to do any sort of uh large scale or or you know, where you're accepting 20, 20 plus people, learn mail merge. Yep, absolutely. And also, you know, reread it and make sure that it doesn't say the wrong city right. or the wrong dates because, uh, yeah, that's not a great thing. Because <laughs> you, you'll, you'll hear that you made the mistake 20 times. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know who would have done that or anyone who has <laughs> made that mistake. Man. But, um, <laughs> oh, Oh yeah, because you if you make that mistake, you know testing and retesting and re-retesting is so much more worthwhile than just having the thirty people come in and say like, "Hey, did you?" Well, also you can scare people because <laughs> if you if you're sending something out with dates and those dates are wrong, yeah, they're going to look at their calendar and be concerned, and so I you're you're trying to get them accurate information and. Some if it says you know Baltimore in one place instead of Cincinnati, yeah, that's a little less egregious than if it says you know, hey, we're expecting to see you on June fourteenth, and somebody looks and they're like, uh, but no, <laughs> I I had I one night sent out uh, an exemplar email and I referenced the wrong wave number. The next morning, I almost had triple-digit messages on Facebook. <laughs> almost, I mean, it was it was low nineties, but it was just mm-hmm. like you know, I just woke up and I was just like, "Oh, what did I do?" Oh. And everyone's convinced they're the one who caught it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, didn't know if you noticed, but um, all right, cool. Uh, so one of the things that with the offer, you're also responsible for collecting. The was it the the W nines and the W eight tax information W nine for U S W eight for international and those those are things that we can keep on file. So once you have one on file with us, it only needs to change if you move. Um, but 
we get those at the event so that we don't have to worry about trying to get stuff through email and throw social security numbers around, stuff like that. All of this stuff that we've been talking about is before the event. And clearly, once you set up your teams and the leads have created their schedules and you've gotten in the venue hall and you've done all this planning, everything's just smooth sailing from then on out. Like, we barely need to talk about, like, what happens at the event itself because you set up a plan and you execute it and everything just happens exactly when it's supposed to, right? Yeah, they hired good people. They're all ready to go. There's no questions. There's no issues. We have all the product lined up. I You guys are joking about it, but when you do things right beforehand, it does help a lot on yeah, site. Right. <laughs> I Like, having the right people in place means that most of the problems get solved before they wind up on my, I'll call it, table, I guess, don't really get in a desk at these events <laughs> and when things do make it up to me or you know at seg con events you know ward is also there and is one of the people who is kind of an end of a chain we will work with customers who are having problems we'll work with judges who are running into issues um, if there are complex things like we're having to play Tetris with events in order to fit them into the available tables. A lot of times that will come and involve us um, to just say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. Because it know. might impact the start time of another event or something along yep. those lines. Okay. Hey, I'm having trouble fitting this in. You know, are you seeing something different than I am? Um, okay. You know, those types of things. Hey, I think I only have, you know, 84 seats for this, but we've already got 40 teams. Do we need to cap this at... 42 two-headed giant teams okay um so it's one of the interesting things is that it's often experienced judges who are coming to us because they recognize that a problem is big enough that it should involve us before it becomes an issue you know there are problems that have come up all throughout events you're just solving them all the time that's what you do uh that's what you're doing on the floor as a judge and identifying when that's that problem that you're looking at has the potential to really disrupt things is a skill set that's developed over time and with experience. It, it was kind of funny because when I was writing up the notes to to talk about, you know, what what's done at the event and I was like, you're really just kind of, you know, looking at what problems are going to come up. You're, you're responding to things that have been brought to you and then you're looking ahead at what could possibly be a problem and then putting things in in play to to prevent them. So, uh, you know, like, it's like, hmm, you kind of don't have a schedule per se. <laughs> you you wrote down what's a typical day look like. Yes, and, and that was I don't, my... I don't have an answer to that uh, because I can tell you a few things that I have to do every day. I have to get the the cash and the Clover machines to take credit cards to all of the staff that are going to be dealing with registration. And then I have to collect that at the end of the night. Okay. Um, there are usually two to three things during a day that I'm aware of. Um, for Baltimore, one of those things was the re-CQs because they're single elimination events. And so figuring out how you're going to get those set up so they run cleanly is more complex than a given Swiss event. You know, if we're just running three rounds, then we can just throw it into Event Link and unless it decides that it wants to have a problem... It's just going to run. Okay. If we are trying to run a single elimination event, we sometimes have to do some weirdness at the start to get it to play out clean. Okay. And 
there were decisions to make about, you know, do we give out more buys in round one or do we give out fewer buys in round two after people have already won a match to get there? Um, and we've decided that we're going to give out all of our buys in round one and then play out clean from there. Um, okay. But I think that at DreamHack, when they were running ReCQs, they handled that differently. And it's just, you know, what are your priorities? What are your goals? And so I think that it's just a little bit, I think it's a little bit cleaner to get all of the buys out of the way, but it's just a matter of opinion. Well, and, and it also depends, I think, on how much traffic you're, you're, you're expecting in the hall that day. You know, which do you want to front end load one way or, or deal with it in the other, in another way? Mm -hmm. And so there's usually a couple of those things where I look at the schedule and I'm like, well, you know, the start of the CEDH, I just want to be around for it. Like, I don't know that I'm going to need to be jumping in the middle of anything, but I would like to be there and aware. And if someone turns to me and says, hey, this is a problem, I don't want to be in the middle of something else when that's happening. In Richmond, when we were doing Dragon's Lair for the first time, I was the person who knew it best. And so I was the person who went out and actually launched it the first few times. Uh, and so that was on my radar as, okay, hey, I want to be here at 2 p.m. so that I can be ready to launch that. But a lot of it is something comes up, someone comes up and says, hey, I you know contacted you through email about covering the event, or I, you know, a vendor has a problem, or, you know, there's a, an issue with a theft, or there's an issue with, you know, someone got disqualified and wants to talk to the tournament organizer and needs to vent about the fact that cheating was apparently not allowed in their event or or even you need to talk to the player because you know they went over and, and above and were particularly egregious and you need to have them removed yeah we haven't had a lot of problems with that but yes that certainly can happen but that's not something you plan for right <laughs> you're not like all right you don't block off that little today. yeah <laughs> You know, I've I've gone off immediately because you were talking about buys, and I was immediately like, "Yeah, ninety six players. What is it? The five ones get? Huh? It's five zero. Yeah. So essentially, it's three thirty two player events. Yeah, you have you'll have you have three people that are that are five zero. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you can run recqs up to ninety six players, and anyone who goes five zero qualifies. And so essentially, you have a thirty two player tournament. And then if you tick over to 33 players, you have two 32-player tournaments. Um, and then if you tick over to 65 players, you have three 32-player tournaments. Uh, and by giving the buys in the first round, you basically are cutting it down so that it's a clean bracket from there. Gotcha. Okay. All right. I just I just brought up my Swiss SwissTriangle.net and was, <laughs> was just like, huh. Yep. Okay, just so let's let's talk like day-to-day -day management stuff um mm -hmm. you ticks are a lot like dollars yeah but okay. they're not but they're not <laughs> <laughs> they're sure they are they're they're they price support y yes but they're they're a lot like dollars in the sense that you don't want a large box of them to go missing no that is true no. okay so do you do do you manage or do you allocate someone to manage monitoring the box of ticks? 
So we have those centrally located on the stage so that they're not accessible to anybody off the stage. Um, the major way that I manage tickets as mm-hmm. well as other high value items that are on the stage mm-hmm. is I manage who comes on the stage. And if I am going to have somebody on stage staff, they're going to be somebody that I trust. And there have been multiple people that I've had on stage staff who actually are not heavily involved in magic. And it's been because they have been someone that is close to and trusted by somebody that I trust. Okay. Um, and so I, I joke that the most important skill that you can bring to the stage at a magic event is being able to sit next to $3,000. And when someone comes back, there's still $3,000 there. <laughs> Interestingly enough, when I asked yes. Ward, um, I don't know, six months, eight months ago, um, as an aside, you know, I, I'm interested in working admin. I said, how do I, how do I go about doing that? What, what, what are the possibilities? He, he said uh, much the same. He said, uh, the, the thing we look for most is that we trust you. Yep. I, I can train a stage staff person on just about everything I need them to do, except for sit next to $3,000 and have there still be $3,000 when I come back. And that's just something that you need to bring to the role. <laughs> So, have you thought about doing the marshmallow test? Like, have you seen that? <laughs> Where you just like sit them in a room with some marshmallows and leave the room for a bit? I mean, we basically do that every event. Like, well, here's your money. Yeah, that, no, the, the, <laughs> give it back to me at the end of the day. The yeah. funny thing is, it sounds it sounds like you know they're watching everything. Um, it, they are. Um, there are people on stage that are, have their eyes on 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 everything going on. But you know. Ward or or Jared, they they get really stuck into things, and and they're they're very busy. They're not sitting there over your shoulder, making sure you're doing everything correctly all the time. Um, they 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 trust the people that they have up there, and we try to be there as a reference and as a resource to them. Uh, one of the other things that I really like, and this goes judges, stage staff, everything, is know when you don't know something. Oh. Like, I want someone to ask questions when they hit things that they think they might be doing wrong. Uh, One of the scariest things is a judge or a scorekeeper or a registration person who thinks that they can fix this problem they just hit all on their own because there's probably a way to do it. And they're unlikely to find it by trial and error. Especially with Google Forms. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Security, lost and found... Yeah, so we usually have security in the hall. Um, It's not a major focus. The main thing that I ask our security staff to do is to kind of circulate through the hall and identify anything that seems to have been left. And I would much rather that they are more aggressive at picking something up and bringing it to us than something sits around for a little while and then gets taken by somebody who it doesn't belong to. And so, you know, we we have cash transactions happening at vendors. We have cash transactions happening with artists. You know, we have cash transactions happening at the stage. Uh, but in general, those are fairly controlled spaces. Um, and so the security staff tries to be a presence, but realistically, they're not necessarily watching everything. Okay. How can they? You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a big call. You know, players who are there and and should be responsible for their for their items, 
if they happen to leave something lying around, a judges or other players can turn them into the stage. The stage logs everything that comes in. Uh, mm-hmm. They track everything through a shared Google Sheet. We make sure we know where everything is at all times. And if somebody has realized that something's gone missing, even if it's after the event, contact SCG because you guys want yep. to put we things... We bring it back and we right. we hold on to it to try and get it back to people. Yeah. yeah. And just to, just to give people a, a, another idea, you're dealing with customer service issues, you know, upset players, right? Absolutely. Okay. About... Do you have like a sense of like the throughput for that? Like, I I would say that I have one to two conversations per weekend, okay. uh, and I would say that about half of those are conversations where it's just a conversation. That it's, there's no de-escalation needed or anything along those lines. It's just, hey, I'd really like to talk to somebody who's in charge, okay. and you know that's obviously something that I can offer because I'm kind of in charge. Um, but I will. Probably every other weekend, there's somebody who's really irate about something and where the engagement needs to be much more de-escalation and kind of bringing them back down in order to engage with them constructively. Um, And that's usually around stuff where they feel like somebody got away with something. That's the that's the most most likely thing to set someone off is feeling like some they got cheated like someone did something that was unethical at best and illegal at worst. Um, and, you know, that's just something where, you know, I engage with them. I try to listen to them. I try to follow through their side of the story. And then quite often it's something where they are missing parts of it or where they don't understand the policy around something. Um and we engage around that. Sometimes it's something where the software has done bad things. And usually those are things that we can kind of address through saying, look, you know, I'm really sorry that this event got crossed up for you, but let me see if I can get you into this next event and, and see if we can get you at least playing. Um, you know, event link is, very good for local store events, and we are definitely not a local store event. There's a lot going on. It's a lot <laughs> harder to kind of follow all of the pieces. And, you know, if you're playing at a local store and everybody sits down, it's real hard to miss your round. If you're playing at a an event where there's a thousand people in the room, in the room and the 25 people you're playing with go and sit down, you might not even notice. Oh. And if... You know, for some reason, EventLink has decided that it's time for you to drop, and I can't put you back in, and I can't fix pairings, and I can't do anything that I would normally do with a a tournament software that was designed for a high level tournament play. Then, yeah, sometimes I have to go down different paths to try and solve that problem. When your only fix is repair the round, you're not. No, we don't repair unless there is a very good reason. You don't rely on EventLink solely, though, right? EventLink is all of our magic side events um, that don't have something significant at stake. Um, so if it's a three-round event, it's probably run on EventLink. Right. The ReCQs, the 5Ks, uh, those are all run in Melee, and that gives us a lot more flexibility to actually fix problems if they do come up. And then you just do a player list event, right, in, in EventLink? 
Uh, yes, yeah. that's correct. Okay. Yep. And I want to make sure that I shout out Jason Flatford here because he has done he's done say, the say God's work. I, I don't <laughs> on know melee. I don't know if it cut out on your recording, but on my mic, the name of the person that you shouted out got cut. So can you okay, say I, that again? I'll I'll say it again. So I want to make sure that I shout out Jason Flatford, who has done the God's work putting together melee, and who I was lucky enough to work with back in the day at SCG. Um, and he put together some of the best tournament software that I knew back then, and he's put together some of the best tournament software that I'm using right now. N- known by many as Flats. Yep. Do you, as uh, as stage manager, do you, do you are you the final say on cutting judges early at the end of the day? I usually give permission to whoever is cutting them early. Um, it's it's usually a hey, I'm looking at the end of the day and I'm about ready to cut so and so just floor judges and just keep keystone is that okay and I'll I'll green light that generally okay. um but I'm not out there saying oh you know what you should cut judges now okay um it's usually somebody else is looking at a situation and saying hey I'm ready to cut people and I'll say yes or no you know hey I think we should hold on to him because of this thing that's coming up or I'd really like to get past this point before we cut people. No, that's for Friday, Saturday, definitely. But on Sunday, when there might be a little bit of, you know, hey, go take down these the, yep. the street signs and stuff like that. So that usually runs through whoever is point for teardown. Okay, so um, you have a, a separate point of contact yep, there? We will have one of our staff be the person that is point for teardown. And so... Whenever uh, an area lead is ready to release judges, they release them to that person. So that might be Micah Miller or Ash White or um, John Vorderbruggen. And once they're at the point where they don't have tasks that they can just throw people at, Mm -hmm. that's when they'll start releasing them. And at that point, they come to me to get uh, compensation for the weekend. Cool, cool. So... All right. Yes. Yeah. So... SCG was extremely well known for coverage um, before yep. COVID, and, and when they were when they were SCG. Oh, I'm sorry. My when it was the SCG just, tour. When it was the tour, and you you weren't only building up judges, you were building up the brands of certain players. Um, that's all gone away. So, what can you tell us about the current status of coverage? Um, what do you do? You still have some form of coverage. What does what form does that take? How does that work? So we don't have any in-house coverage right now, um, but we do facilitate what we call backpack coverage. Um, and so, you know, Corey Baumeister, Anurag Das uh, come out to events and stream either their matches or um, specific players' matches over the course of a tournament. And so we have an area where we have power set up for them and a couple of tables where they can set up and then they can bring matches over to those tables to stream. So we don't have any sort of official coverage right now, mm-hmm. but uh, there's usually some some people streaming from Star City Games events. Um, we've had some people working with the Flesh and Blood events as well, uh, and they have done a little bit more aggressively, brought people in to actually do commentary, um, and... They're kind of rearranged recently to 
kind of set up and they were in Baltimore and they're looking to be in Cincinnati as well. And so we're excited to see what they can do. And I know that the flesh and blood community is, is really um, thirsty for a lot of uh, content that, you know, is hard to get a hold of without larger tournaments broadcasting. So how does, so how does this backpack coverage compare to, you know, the pro tour? It doesn't. I mean, the pro tour is a massive setup it is in the hall that we set up about half the space is dedicated to coverage half there are dozens of people behind the scenes um there are there's 10 people who are dedicated to the four feature matches at any given point on the front end and so you've got four judges four spotters and two people recording cards in hand um and you know, a lot of these are heavy hitters. We usually have one of the appeals judges in that area for the entire event. You know, it was Frank Karsten and Tannen Grace who were handling the the hand spotter duties over the course of uh, the Pro Tour in Minneapolis. And so you've got a lot of, of people doing a lot of work. Uh, Adam Staborski and Corbin Hosler are doing written coverage stuff. Uh, to pick out the feature matches as well as to get out information about archetypes and uh, all kinds of stuff on Magic GG. Uh, Rich Hagon's running the the actual coverage. The Pro Tour's got, you know, the desk where uh, Maria and, and Paul and uh, just, you know, a team of absolute rock stars are are giving you the context of the tournament. And then you've got people doing play by play like Marshall and, and Corey. And, you know, you just have the best of the best out there giving you all of the context around the event and trying to make it as accessible to people as possible. Right. So two people versus what sounds like 20 or 25, even I, I think you're probably lowballing. Really? Wow. Yeah. Oh well. Okay. All the camera crew, all the sound people, all of the. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, it, like okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So closer to forty or forty-five, maybe even. Yeah. There's there's probably more people dedicated to coverage than there are to judging the pro tour, hmm. by a wide margin. Interesting. Yeah. And and your the judges on coverage way exceed your one in thirty uh, or thirty to one oh, yeah. ratio as well, right? Yep. Uh, we, for four matches, there are usually four judges, and that is essentially one person watching the feed, one person walking around the lower tables. There's three, mm-hmm. there's one on stage and three that are in the feature match area, and one up on stage, and then one who is kind of off their feet so that you can kind of actively rotate through. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And the one watching the feed, you're just. Looking to see if people start blowing up, right? So they now are on a delay. We've changed from the old uh, live coverage to a delayed coverage, which actually allows them to do a bunch of of wonderful things with it. Um, They can speed up the backup matches. They run a lot more content because they're able to say, okay, we're going to follow the main match, and then we're going to run this backup match at 1.3 speed. Uh, we're going to just do game three. We're going to do this and they can put a lot of puzzle pieces together to make it a really exciting broadcast. Um, 
but that means that Twitch is not able to catch things live. So you're just watching to make sure, hey, do I understand what's going on? And if I don't, I just want to make sure that I ask the question. Okay. So the, the, the person watching the feed is basically playing the role of, okay, cool. All right. So that is, for the, for the most part, that's the event uh, from, from, uh, from y'all's perspective. Okay. So before, before we end this, uh, I was surprised to hear about, and I saw, I saw some other judges talking about this CEDH mm-hmm. tournament. At and I was told that it was run at Competitive Rel, a multiplayer event. Um, yeah, that is not entirely true. Okay, um, it was actually run at what I'd call regular plus. Okay, um, so Abe Corson was our head judge, and we had some discussions ahead of time about what the best way to handle these things are because the MTR is not set up for multiplayer events, and it's certainly not set up for complex high-end casual slash i don't know what you call cedh events um but potted events is just not built into what is strictly a one-on-one document uh and so one of the suggestions and i want to give abe credit for this was that he wanted to run it at regular with kind of the expectation that we're going to have deck lists we're going to have uh, the ability to check decks. We're going to have the ability to do a lot of things that we do at competitive REL and set that expectation. But in terms of fixes, we're going to go into it with the philosophy of we're going to try to fix things. Um, and having it officially be regular rather than competitive REL means that there's less prescribed fixes for things. And when you're dealing with Commander and you're dealing with a whole bunch of players doing a whole bunch of things, it's a lot easier to fix something than it is to fix something by policy. One of the initial questions was, how do we want to handle a trigger situation? And, you know, someone misses a trigger in a normal match of magic, you ask the opponent if they want to put it on the stack. Well, there's as many as three opponents Mm -hmm. in this event. And so... One of the things that uh, some other people have done is vote uh, on whether or not it goes on the stack. And we decided, you know what? Nope, we're just going to say if any of the opponents wants to put it on the stack, it goes on the stack. But that doesn't fit policy. Right. That just is a way to fix it and a way that you can be consistent. And we didn't want to have anything where we had to vote on anything we didn't want to have things where you know we were having to sort out a whole bunch of things we wanted to have it be as simple as possible when we were having to solve problems okay any issues with king making in so there were some there's some other policies that talk about spite plays and king making mm-hmm. and to be perfectly honest i'm sorry you're playing commander like you've made the de- you've made the decision to play a four player game at some point you're very likely to put someone in the position whether it is officially king making or not where their decision is going to decide who wins whether by accident po- whether by accident or for a purpose yeah where where yeah. they're in a position where they're screwed either way i'm dying i really just the but, i'm sorry you're playing commander is such a simple answer like, you have decided you want to play a social game. 
this is one of the parts of social games is that people make decisions based on things other than is it going to help me win? Because once you have more than two people, you don't always get to make the decision that helps you win. Yeah. So, so let me ask you a question. Will we see this again? I think we will. I think that we'll also revisit some of the things that we did. We had an issue where we had one pod that drew in round one, and because we were pairing based on your record, those four players got bunched together. <laughs> um, oh. And so we have a couple of ways we want to approach it. Uh, the biggest piece of feedback we got was people want to not play in the same pod as somebody again. And so figuring out how to make that work effectively is one of the things that is a priority for us. Um, I think figuring out whether or not we want to change up tiebreakers at all is a question. Um, I was fairly happy with the tiebreakers that we had, um, but I think that the biggest thing that we can do is we decided to play 75-minute rounds with an end of round where we looked at the number of players and we had, we had we played that number of sorry we looked at the number of remaining players and we played that number of turns to finish out and if you wanted to take extra turns you could take extra turns and we still only took if there were three remaining players we still only took three of those turns and if you took all three of them good job you're playing CEDH and if you are sad about that you probably are sad about playing CEDH um, the goal was to win. And so I think that people understood, you know, that that was kind of the way that you play a serious type of tournament. Um, and so I was happy with that. But what it also did was it actually ran a little bit faster than we anticipated, yeah. which means that I think that we could run five rounds with the top 16. And that extra round, I think, adds a lot to the uh, ability to kind of separate players um, and not kind of have to worry as much about tiebreakers making a lot of, of the decisions. Now, I, I don't know if you received this, but I, I'm sitting here and thinking about the event and, and the, the course of it. And I wasn't directly involved in it, but I was, I was watching it very, very attentively when I could. The one thing that strikes me is, is that Abe's announcements at the beginning were, were long. And I think it's because you were still trying to figure things out. Would it be possible in the future to have a little bit more structure for um, the information given to players in advance so Abe did not have to do as many announcements in the beginning? Yeah, I think that where that was tough was because this is the first time that we're doing it. Right. No one knew how we did things, which meant that Abe spent a lot of time trying to address how other people did things and how we would either be similar or different from those events that people have played in before. And so, yeah, setting clearer expectations for here's how these things are going to be handled maybe can happen ahead of time, but also I think it will not need to be communicated quite as thoroughly as it needed to be for this event. Hmm. Cool. It really was neat watching it, Brian. <laughs> yeah. 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 There was, there was, you know, that, you know, that crowd of players that gets around the top tables at, at towards yeah. the end. It was huge. There were so many players trying to watch the last few rounds. It was, it was great. I'm violently allergic to the idea of CompRel EDH. However, what Jared described is 
oh yeah that's that seems fine you know but like yeah like using the ipg or some sort of like a secondary you know non-official policy doc or whatever is just kind of like yeah i don't like that but but uh yeah like like regular plus a plus um jared i got i got um a question for you um I, I, there's one there's one in the show notes that I want to know but mm-hmm. for for you personally what is the thing about Baltimore that you are the most proud of like when you look back at the weekend and go like I am super happy or proud of this accomplishment so we really didn't have lines and that's that's a really big thing um command fest events especially can be very difficult to get everybody through the door. And I really feel like there were, you know, there were times we had 10 people in line or something along those lines, but they were moving very quickly. And that's just, you know, you had a surge of people who were signing up for an event. Uh, That's not the type of line that I'm talking about. We never had that line where someone gets in and just feels like they're there for such an extended period of time that it's part of their weekend. You know, if you have to wait in line in order to pick up your badge, but it's, you know, five minutes to do it, that's a lot different than, you know, oh, it took 45 minutes to get our badge and we didn't even get in until 2 p.m. Or and we missed, those the, types first, of things. We missed the first event that we yeah. wanted to get in. Yeah. Which have definitely happened at other events and at our events and at other people event, people's events as well. Um, but we just, we didn't have that in Baltimore. And so when we were looking at the numbers and we had over 1,300 players, that's a, a large event. That's not, oh my God, you know, crushing it, it's... It's huge, but it is a large event. I think it was our second or third largest event of the year. And that's a a big thing to me that we've had as a focus for years is cutting down the time that people are spending in lines waiting to do something because we want them to be playing instead. And if they're not playing, we want them to be walking around and enjoying the event. I'm I'm just going to say that's such a judge answer. <laughs> Like, like, what's the thing you're, that you're most proud of? Line, like, effective line management. It's look, look, man. Disney can be like porn to me. <laughs> like, I get it because I'm sitting here listening and I'm like, that's really impressive. That's awesome. That's a great thing to be proud of. And it's so like, like trying to explain to someone just how excited judges can get over queuing is is you know, or lack thereof is kind of a thing that you can't have that conversation with, with non event people. Cause they're just like, I don't get it. <laughs> when, when we've had things set up well and lines have been flowing cleanly, I have on more than one occasion stood on stage, turned to somebody and said, it's beautiful. <laughs> just look at that. Look at that lack of line. <laughs> Oh wow! <laughs> so this this might this might actually tie into the next question. Then, then what is something that you believe that most people don't know or don't think about managing a large event, but you wish that they did? I've been thinking about this one because because this was in the show notes, and I've been trying to come up with an answer. And realistically, I'm I'm not sure that I have a good answer because if we're doing our job right, they don't need to know very much at all. Um, So, you know, if they want to know things about events, you know, how much work goes into it from 
judges and staff before the event because they get to see at the event, but just the amount of thought and planning and care that, you know, everybody from, you know, me all the way down to the last floor judge on staff puts into making sure that their experience at the event is great. And, you know, ideally they don't have to think about that at all. You know, that's, that's why we're putting in the work is so that they can walk in the door, have a great time and walk out the door. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't need them to know more about it. I just want them to have fun. Okay. I, I would, I would probably say like, I want you to know why, why we don't have Wi-Fi. <laughs> right because because it's a billion dollars I, I, there are there are certain people who make it very clear that they should know more um <laughs> but in general to the average person walking in the door i just i just want them to know that they're excited i i want i want them to walk in the door have as little thing as few things between them and having a great time as possible. I like the way you put that. There's people that make it very clear that they should know more. <laughs> it's just very diplomatic. So SCG, you're you're you you've got uh, SCG uh, SCG cons. You're involved in 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 the in the Pro Tour uh, and Worlds. What do you see as like obviously no nothing that's like you know protected information or anything like that but what do you see as the most probable future for magic like looking looking like two three years down the road are large events like gps going to come back is it, or are we going to continue like this evolving ecosystem where, where several smaller tos are starting like regional series that kind of stuff what's yeah, if, what do you if, see if you've got a crystal ball what's what's it look like <laughs> if i have a plant here yeah um so for SCG, I think that the general body of the event is, is going to stay similar to what it is, which is you're going to have some amount of, of cash events. You're going to have a lot of side events. Um, ideally, we're going to keep rolling around pre-releases. Those have been really successful, and it's been really exciting to see players come out and get to play in 100-person pre-releases again. And, you know, we're going to continue to have a commander element to all of our events. Um, the command zone has been successful on its own. It also is something where, you know, when we've been able to pair SCG cons with command fests, those have been a success as well. And, you know, we're going to look for those opportunities to continue to build experiences that players want to do. This year we added throwback drafts. We've added chaos sealed. We're trying to figure out events that can work as you know here's something you can't do down at your local store mm -hmm. you know if you and your friends want to come out and play with mystery boosters or if you want to come out and and play a big jump start event or something along those lines um that's not you know we want to create those opportunities that people can't just recreate on their own yeah um and so i expect scg cons to continue no grand melee uh, We've talked about how to do that in a way that doesn't make everyone hate it. Um, and we have some ideas, but we, you, we could certainly wind up with something similar to that. It just, you know, won't be as bad as Grand Melee. Um, I may have opinions on Grand Melee. <laughs> okay, fair. Um, but yeah, no, that kind of large scale event where you have a whole bunch of people playing at once, I think is something that's attractive. I just don't think that it's been built successfully yet. 
for Magicons, I would expect that they are going to continue doing what they have been doing and more of it. Um, I think that you're probably going to see kind of the same cadence of kind of one per quarter lining up with the Pro Tours uh, and Worlds. But, you know, the stuff that you get to do there is is wonderful. You know, they really bring a ton of resources to bear. A lot of the special stuff that they create for each of the events has been wonderful. Uh, I think that they've really put a lot of work into the pins as well as a bunch of the jackets and, you know, the robe the last time. They really have a bunch of things that they are doing at those events that is just unique and special. And I expect that those are going to continue. And that's that's the model for right now. Hmm. For other organizers, I think that they're trying to find their space. And, you know, I've seen stuff like um, what was the Salt Lake City, the summit, I think. Yeah, the summit. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's been a couple of other ones that have tried to, to launch. I know there's Laughing Dragon out on the West Coast. There's NRG in the Midwest where they're kind of finding their niche. But one of the things that I think is going to be challenging is I do not believe that the competitive magic scene is as big as it was before the pandemic. I think that the the number of players who are active and want to play at that level is not as high yeah you'd, you'd probably get like one you'd, the first event would be really big just from people starved for it and then a drop off i think that yeah you've seen some spikes when we first came back it was really big um and then it kind of settled back down and it settled back down to about half the size of what it was pre-pandemic and I'm sure there are multiple things and I'm sure that people can talk about, oh, I think that it's this. I think that it's that. But my theory is that there's just more people who are more of the people who are actively engaged in magic are in it for hanging out and not chasing the pro tour or chasing just high level magic play. Now, you know, I'm sure there are certain things that could happen that could change that. Um, we we don't have uh, an end of the year event that we're building towards. We don't have the type of coverage that we had, and so there are certain you know bells and whistles around large events that are no longer uh, things that we're doing. But you know, I also think that that's something that other organizers are going to find challenges with as well. So I. I don't think that there's hard cap or anything like that on how big things can get. And I think you're going to find certain events that spike because of when they happen or some format catches fire and is really popular at a certain point in time. But I don't think that you're going to be able to consistently put up the types of numbers that we were putting up prior to the pandemic. And I think that leads you towards side events and that leads you towards creating experiences the way that magic con has been doing where it's not come out and play in a huge event and now they do have the sealed 100k that they're doing Mm -hmm. um but i i don't know that that's the direction that magic is headed i think that's an interesting idea you know that's a whole lot of money to throw at that and it's also really expensive to get into and so I'm interested to see how it does, 
but I also don't think it's anything that I could replicate at SCG. So Jared, that's about all that that we had on the show notes to talk about. Is there anything else that you specifically wanted to to mention before we sign off? Yeah, I should plug that we should have SCG Con Columbus leadership applications open right now with SCG Con Columbus floor judge applications coming soon. Uh, so keep your eye on the SCG Judge Discord, and uh, we'll have application announcements every time that we open up a window. Yeah, you guys have been really good with the Discord about posting uh, posting when applications are up. If you're a Magic Judge, if you're Flesh and Blood, and then not only Columbus, but then it looks like six weeks later you got Dallas, Fort Worth, and then another three weeks after that, four weeks after yeah, that you got we Pittsburgh. Expect, I expect to do Dallas uh, and Pittsburgh leadership together, and that should probably be going up in early August. When, when when you're actually accepting applications, let me ask you, how does SCG do this, if, if you're willing to share? Do you do you do rolling acceptances? Do you do you kind of figure out, hey, these three people really want it and they got their letter in first and we're going to definitely take them? And then how does that work? Uh, so we will, uh, f- from leadership, we will sometimes make some floor judge offers to judges who did not need travel stipends. So, you know, we might say, hey, we don't have a slot for you at Keystone, but if you're interested, you know, we'd like to offer you a three-day slot on the event as a floor judge. Uh, And sometimes that will be something that they can take. Sometimes it's not something that works out for them. Um, In general, we will make all of our offers at the same time unless someone contacts us directly and says, hey, I need a decision early in order to book a flight or I need a decision early because I'm deciding between these two events. Um, And at that point we will kind of consider that application in the context of the applications we have so far and see whether or not we can get an answer for that person. Very cool. So that's everything, right? We're all good. We know everything there is to know about large events and how they run. Everything about everything. Yeah. You guys don't need me anymore, right? Well, well, you just take over. I, I love, I loved having Jared on, and I've said this like the the three or four other times that he's come on. It's just great to just sit back and just listen to an expert talk about things that they are are they know about and are good at. This sounds remarkably similar to the conversation I had with him Sunday morning about a week and a half ago. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I sat there and I said, you know, you can fill an hour, right? He said, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I think we just clicked over the two-hour yeah. mark, so uh, hopefully yeah. you've cut out a whole bunch of me going um and ah, uh, and uh, I'll just sound much more erudite. Funny enough, when I run Truncate Silence, it normally cuts out about eight to ten minutes of just silence, which is amazing. Well, there's some more. Yeah, yeah. just that thing. <laughs> no, they're not going to hear it because when I cut it out, it's going to be gonna gone. Be a- it's only going to be a half a second in duration unless I go back in and, and edit the silence and add back, it back in. in. Yeah, no, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna do that. Most excellent. So, Most excellent. So, all right. Well, I guess that's everything then, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. That's our episode. Join us next time when we talk about, Ooh, guess what? Our next show is number 300. So you better drop in to listen to that. Until then, you can send us an email at judgecast at gmail.com or like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at JudgeCast. 
Until then, I'm Charles Feather, and I keep it fair. I'm Brian Prilliman, and I am not going to edit in silence. And I'm Jared Silva, and I keep running large events so you all have something to do.